Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and I am joined today, as always, by Simon Elliott, Head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. I actually say, as always, because next week, I'm afraid that the listeners to this podcast are going to have to do without Simon's input, indeed, for the next couple of weeks, because he is taking a holiday, a well-earned holiday during that period. We will have two interesting replacements lined up. Uh, they won't be doing quite the same job, of course, as Simon, because who could do that? But uh, just an alert that there will be a couple of weeks when you will not be hearing from Simon, but from another professional investor, uh, who I hope will be of interest and provide something for you to think about at least. So anyway, let's kick off as we always do by having a quick look at the market and what's happened this week. We said we're going into the kind of quiet period of the year, but uh, tell us what's been going on, Simon. Well, it's actually been a better week for the UK market this week. As you remember last week, it was all a a little bit bumpy. We saw that sell off, particularly in Chinese equities. Certainly seems a little calmer this week. The UK market for the first four days of the week is very much in positive territory, up about 1.6%. And in terms of the investment company sector, it's done a little bit better, up about 2%. But that's in contrast to the investment company's fall of about 0.6% last week. In terms of the sector average discount, well, that's narrowed in, actually. So probably started the week about 3.2%. And it's come in, or certainly, again, for the first four days of the week, into about 2 2.1%, so a little bit of tightening. But in terms of uh, how we're doing so far this year, it's worth noting that the UK market's probably up about 13 13.5% so far this year, so not a bad period at all for UK equities. And the investment company sector has lagged, so probably about 9 9.5% in positive territory, but still a little bit behind the mainstream UK market. So this week, yes, you talk about you know a drift into summer malaise, I think there's definitely a few things going on. Clearly, still a lot of attention in terms of China and uh, the potential for future regulation, particularly for those companies that have a heavy data usage. Obviously, inflation remains on the agenda for most market observers. Uh, And I think the Bank of England came out this week and stated that they expected to see a peak of 4% during this year for the UK. But uh, behind it all, obviously, earnings ever important. And we're going to go on to talk about some of the interim results that we've seen across the investment trust sector. But overall, the picture with regard to earnings for for most mainstream operating companies seems to be relatively positive. And that feels like the tailwind that's driving the market on. Yes, indeed. And we have a lot of results to get through this week. So uh, we're probably going to crack on quite quickly because there's a lot of companies which have year ends in May or June who have been putting out their results, and we need to work through some of them. We've dropped a few of the property company NAV updates because we've heard from uh, them already in many cases, but there's still a lot to get through. So let's crack on, uh, and let's start with corporate activity. There's news of another potential merger stroke combination involving Custodian, REIT, and Drum Income Plus. Perhaps you can fill us in on that one, Simon. Yes, that's right. So again, another interesting development in the property sector this week. The board of Drum Income Plus REIT, also known as DRIP, announced that it was in discussions regarding a possible offer by Custodian REIT for the entire issued and to be issued share capital of the investment company. It's a slightly complicated deal, but effectively shares in Custodian REIT will be offered in respect of each Drum Income Plus share, and there's a ratio of 0.535 per share. 
So what this means, or certainly at the time they announced the deal, it had an implied value for the share capital of Drum Income of about £21.6 million. And that was based on the closing price of custodian REITs on the 3rd of August. Now that uh, represents a discount to the NAV, probably somewhere in the region of about 19%, though it clearly depends on the actual value of custodian REITs share price, and it has moved around a little bit since. But the board of Drum Income Plus is minded to recommend any firm offer, uh, and it's actually given custodian REITs access to due diligence materials, which is quite an important step into making these deals progress. In addition to that, custodian REITs has received an irrevocable undertaking from Drum Income Plus is the largest shareholder, Seven Investment Management, to support the offer. And they uh, represent about 69% of the share capital of the fund. So that would seem to be quite positive as well. So under the rules surrounding this kind of activity, Custodian REIT has until the 1st of September either to announce a firm intention to make an offer or announce it does not intend to progress. So uh, we'll see what happens. Well, let's just quickly talk about a little bit of the background to this. I mean, Custodian REIT is one of the uh, commercial property companies that's actually been trading at a premium, which presumably is not an irrelevant factor in this development, uh, while Drum Income Plus has been, shall we say, a big disappointment. I think it has performed quite poorly. So what do you think is going on here? And it's, it's become quite small, Drum Income Plus. So I guess this is a good example of consolidation. But um, what else do, can you say about this uh, particular proposal? No, you're spot on. And just to put some numbers around that, Drum Income Plus has a market cap of about £23 million. So it is by some distance the smallest kind of commercial property investment company. Um, It's fair to say its property portfolio when it was last valued was worth about £49 So that obviously market cap is lower. But there there are some similarities between Custodian REIT and Drum Income Plus. So they're both focused on smaller lot sizes and they both have an emphasis on asset management. In other words, they're not just kind of buy and hold property investors. They do look to seek to uh, kind of make improvements and seek better terms, rental terms and all the rest of it. Although Custodian REIT has a higher industrial weighting. Certainly, if you look at the Drum Income Plus portfolio, it's quite weighted to office, about 53%. Shops as well um, and other types of retails are quite a large proportion of the portfolio. But I think Drum Income Plus had announced already that it was going to uh, consider various strategic moves. So the fact that it's open to a merger might not come as a surprise. But I think to take a step back from this, as as you mentioned, this is the second approach that we've had in just a number of weeks. The the, the first one being for GCP Student Living that I think we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And I think it does raise some interesting points about the property sector. Obviously, custodian REIT is on a premium rating, as you mentioned, but actually there are a lot of funds on often quite significant discounts. uh, And there's a question in terms of how much value those investment companies offer given their portfolios. But here we've got a case where Seven Investment Management, which is a which is a wealth management firm, has committed its shares. It's become the largest shareholder. Maybe it always was a largest shareholder. And so this is pretty certain to go through, I would think, unless somebody comes along and makes a, an alternative offer. So what do you think will be the next step? I mean, obviously, Custodian has got to confirm that it uh, it wants to go ahead by that date you mentioned. But I guess it will also be looking at what happens to its own share price to see whether its own shareholders are Uh, happy with this uh, proposal or not. Would that be a fair question to ask? That's a very good point, actually. And it's worth noting that when the announcement was made with regard to the approach, 
Custodian REIT was trading at 105.8p. That softened a little since that announcement, so just in a few days since. It closed on Thursday at 103.8p, so just down a couple of p. But yeah, it's worth watching that because clearly for the ongoing shareholders in Custodian REIT, I think they will be quite keen as well that the quality of the investment portfolio, so the quality of the property assets that it earns, is not diluted down. Whereas I I suspect Custodian REITs are keen to grow uh, larger and they see this as a bit of an opportunity, not least they might be able to get hold of a portfolio at an attractive valuation. But I think for shareholders in Custodian REIT, they will be keen that the quality threshold remains high as well. So in other words, if we see the share price continue to drift lower, that might suggest that there's some doubts on that score. But from the point of view of Drum, Income Plus, you say it's become quite small and it said it was looking at how to resolve the problems it's got as a result of that and its relatively poor performance. Perhaps just the only other point to make is why do you think the custodian REIT is trading at a premium when most of the other commercial property trusts are trading at a discount? I mean, what's, what have they done right that is uh, particularly uh, helpful to their performance in the market? Yeah, no, that's a very good point, actually. And, and again, just to put some numbers around that, custodian REIT's trading on a 3% premium uh, at the close of Thursday, and that compares with an average for its uh, UK commercial property peer group, probably about eight or nine. But within that, there is quite a range. And I think, you know, that rating, it probably reflects the fact that they've done a good job through this pandemic period, clearly very difficult backdrop for property in general. Uh, I think the way that they've run their property portfolios during that time has been recognised as, as being good. They've probably done a little bit better on the rent collection side probably been a little bit quicker to restore dividends uh, and basically kept the faith of the shareholder base. Okay, well, we'll see how that one plays out over the next month or so. And let's move on and talk a quick update on Genesis Emerging Markets. The uh, proposal is that it should move to Fidelity, the management of this particular trust. What's the update on that one? Yes, it was just a quick update. Basically, they, the Genesis Emerging Markets came out this week and said that an EGM will be held on or around the 1st of October Uh, for shareholders to approve various matters that will allow the appointment of Fidelity as the investment manager. And that's expected to happen shortly thereafter, assuming that that approval is forthcoming. In addition to that, the the 25% tender offer, um, that's actually expected to begin in early September, again, conditional on that shareholder approval at the EGM. But the tender will actually close and the tender price calculation uh, will occur in mid-October. So that one, assuming everything goes through, should be done and dusted by October. That's uh, a couple of months away. Let's move on and talk about uh, RTW Venture Fund, RTW. Some listeners to the Moneymaker Circle will know we did an interview with one of the directors of this trust a little while ago, and they said they were going to be moving or wanted to move to the main market. So uh, what's the news on that score? Basically, that has happened. So shareholder approval was forthcoming for for that move. And basically, they moved from the specialist fund segment uh, of the London Stock Exchange to the premium segment. uh, And that became effective on Friday the 6th of August. It's also worth noting as well that they've got an additional sterling denominated market quote for the shares. Um, So that's been established previously. It was a dollar denominated stock. What does that mean? Well, actually, then it becomes more of a mainstream uh, investment company and uh, will become eligible to join the FTSE All Share, assuming its size and liquidity meets the uh, requisite levels. Presumably it will, actually, will it not? Uh, I guess the liquidity has to be proven, but in terms of size, it's managed to bulk up quite a long way. We should remind people this is a biotech and healthcare, mostly early stage companies, and uh, it's going into a sector where there's obviously some very... uh, 
successful trusts in the broader healthcare and biotech sector. What do you think the prospects of this one are? Well, in terms of its size at the moment, uh, its market cap in sterling terms is probably just over about £300 million or so. And that would see it as a candidate for inclusion in the in the FTSE All Share on size grounds. So at the last quarterly review, um, the cutoff off the top of my head, I seem to remember it was not too far below 200 million. So it has some headroom in that regard. Obviously, liquidity is a is a separate matter, and there's a, a whole kind of science involved in in establishing whether a stock is liquid enough to be included. The fact that they've chosen to go to the main market, they obviously want to get more visibility. They want to attract a broader shareholder base. I imagine that's one of the primary objectives. And in terms of performance, obviously, they're relatively newcomers. They don't have a long track record. But um, how will they uh, stack up, do you think, against the other some of the other big names in this particular sector? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it, it, as you mentioned, it's still relatively early days. But if you look Say over the last 12 months, uh, in share price terms, they're up about 38%. And compared with their nearest biotech and healthcare peers, that would put them at the uh, the top of that particular pile during that period. But again, that's a relatively short period. Okay, so that's certainly one to watch. And let's move on and talk about some results. And we're going to kick off with a, a trust called Scott Gems, S-G-E-M. We don't talk about them very often. You might tell us a little bit about them. And uh, they produce some interim results. But uh, I think it's fair to say they're one of the strugglers in their particular sector. What have they had to say? So they announced interim results for the six months to the end of June. In that time, their NAV total return was up 9.4%. Now that compares with a rise of 14% for the MSCI Emerging Markets Small Company Index, a rise of 10% for the Emerging Markets ex-Asia index and up 5.4% for the MSCI Emerging Index. Now, uh, these are all the fund's respective comparator indices and probably give you a little bit of an insight into what they're trying to do. So this investment trust is run by Stuart Investors. Uh, It has a small cap focus uh, and an emerging markets bias. It has uh, quite a strong value discipline in terms of its investment approach. So if you look at the portfolio, and it is quite concentrated, actually only 39 holdings or so, just under half will be in Asia, probably about 15% or so in India, and then quite big weightings to Latin America and Sub-Saharan Africa as well. But in share price terms, uh, not quite as good as that NAV total return. They were up 6.2% as the discount widened from about 16% to 18%. So you're right, we've got them in the global small cap peer group, and with a market cap of 40 million, that puts them as the smallest member of that particular group. And it's worth noting as well that the board and the investment manager have actually been adding to their shares and in aggregate own about 25% of the company. Right. But in terms of performance, I think it's still trading below its uh, issue price, is it not, after three or four years in the market, something like that? Well, it's it's trading on a share price of about 75p or so. And uh, yes, I mean, if you look at the return over, I've got the numbers here, over three years, they're down 14% in share price total return terms. Uh, and again, you know, some of the other uh, investment trust companies and their people approaching investment very, very differently. But that would include people like Edinburgh Worldwide up 77% in that time and BMO Global Smaller Companies up 23%. So these are investment trusts, to be fair, with very different approaches. But yes, you're absolutely right. Scott Gems has bubbled under a little bit in terms of performance so far. Yeah, so that's interesting in a way. I mean, the fact that some of the uh, principals involved have, have increased their shareholding, it suggests that the Obviously, the value style has not helped them at all over this period. 
And uh, it will be an interesting special situation to watch. It will be developing as a special situation, I would say, where, you know, if the discount keeps on going wider and wider, all sorts of things might become possible. Well, we'll be interested to see how that one plays out. Let's move on and talk about results from the flexible investment sector. And we've got a BMO managed portfolio that has two share classes. That's BMPG and BMPI. This is a trust that we've talked about in the past. And indeed, I can say that uh, one of the uh, people who are going to try and step into your shoes, Simon, in the next couple of weeks is the manager of this investment trust, which is Peter Hewitt. So he's going to be talking about what's happening in the market from his perspective. So uh, anyway, tell us more about their results. So they announced annual results for the year ended 31st of May. Uh, In that time, the income portfolio generated an NAV total return of 29%. Uh, while the growth portfolio's shares were up 32.5%, and that compares with a rise of 23.1% for the FTSE All Shares. So um, I think it's fair to say Peter Hewitt has done a good job for his shareholders in both share classes. It's also worth noting, actually, in terms of the growth shares, that that's the ninth consecutive year of outperformance, where in fact the income shares have outperformed in 11 of the 13 years since launch. So this was not a one-off. The income uh, share class, funnily enough, has a dividend, and that was increased by 1.6% in the period. But in terms of what performed well for Peter, well, funnily enough, a number of the investment trusts that we've we've talked about in podcasts past, so names such as Henderson Opportunities, Artemis Alpha, Fidelity Special Values, Henderson Smaller Companies, and Chrysalis Investments, they've been winners for him in the the growth portfolio. Uh, Laggards in the period, uh, including BH Macro, European Opportunities, Sincona and Worldwide Healthcare Fund. In terms of the income share class, actually, this is interesting because the income share class benefited from holdings in uh, Princess Private Equity, MB Private Equity, and two names that you wouldn't necessarily expect to see uh, in an income portfolio, uh, but also kind of more mainstream income names such as Lord Debenture, Lowland and Secure Income Rate also did well. But I think when Peter talks to you in the the next few weeks, he'll have some interesting things to say, as always. Uh, But just catching up with myself this week, he talked about how the portfolios had been tilted a little bit during the the latter half of the period towards kind of more cyclical value names. And and he certainly increased exposure to UK equity trusts. But actually, um, he does have a preference for secular growth stories. So there's quite a few technology and healthcare specialists in both portfolios. Yes, but just worth emphasizing that the reason this is of particular interest and why it will be good to have Peter on our podcast is that he only invests in investment trusts. It's a fund that only invests in investment trusts, so he has a very wide knowledge of the sector on a par with your own, Simon, it's fair to say. And he'll be talking about uh, a lot of those things that have contributed to this, obviously being a very excellent set of results. Let's move on and talk about a rather different animal. This is something called Rights and Issues Investment Trust, R-I-I-I which is a much smaller vehicle. It's been going for a long time, actually, but it's a much smaller vehicle. Uh, What can you tell us about that and what have their results been like? What do they do and what have their results been like? So they announced interim results for the six months to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 23%, and that compared with a rise of 9.3% for the FTSE All Share. Revenue return per share came in at 28.9p, uh, and the interim dividend was maintained at 10 spot 75p. And aside from that, they don't give an awful lot of weight in their investment trust results. Uh, in contrast to virtually every other investment country that takes the opportunity 
with regard to interim and annual results that give you chapter and verse and how they see the world, every change they've made in the six or 12 month period. Simon Knott, the manager of this self-managed investment trust, uh, seems to be relatively tight-lipped. What I can tell you though, is that the portfolio is relatively concentrated, probably about 28 holdings or so. It is focused on UK equities um, and it probably has um, assets of around about 180, 190 million or so. Yeah, so this is a trust that sort of almost by uh, matter of policy sales under the surface, so to speak. It doesn't do anything to promote itself as far as I'm aware. And it has been going an awfully long time. I mean, it was started by Simon Knott in 1984, I think. And it's remained pretty small, but it's had a, a pretty good track record. It's a uh, slightly unusual vehicle, but um, yeah, it uh, hides its light under a bushel, I think it's fair to say. How does it trade in the market out of interest, given that it's a lack of profile? Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it's trading on a discount of about uh, 11% or so. And actually, that discount has widened out uh, a little bit. So there was a time not too long ago when I think a few of our friends in the media had kind of picked up on its performance record. And certainly the long-term record is strong. And uh, obviously, it got a little bit of a, an airing as a result of that. But since then, as you mentioned, it certainly uh, has ticked the box requiring no publicity. And if you actually look at the number of shares that get traded on a daily basis... It's relatively illiquid, despite the fact, as I mentioned, having a, a market cap of around 180 million or so. So, I mean, it's the share price is not too far off 25 pounds per share. So it's actually got a heavy share price. But on average, in the last six months or so, it's probably trades between about five and six thousand shares a day. Right. So, uh, as it were, the discount in a way is not very meaningful, as it were, because if you actually went and tried to buy some shares, you might a find it difficult and b. Um, if you came in with a big order, it would uh, certainly change the price. So that's an interesting curio. Moving on, we've also heard from uh, RIT Capital Partners, RCP, which is a very well-known multi-asset trust, and uh, they've had some interim results. They have indeed, to the 30th of June, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 19.1%. That compared to a rise of 12.2% for the MSCI or Country World Index and 3.4% for RPI plus 3%. And they also measure their performance against that. In share price terms, over that six-month period, uh, they were up 18.5%. So a good insight. I mean, Rick Capital Partners, it sits in the flexible investment sector. Um, it certainly has, I think it's fair to say, an equity bias, though it does uh, invest in different types of assets. In this particular period, the private investment portfolio performed well for it. Uh, and there was an IPO of a holding in Coupang, a South Korean e-commerce company um, that helped there. Also, more cyclical positions and single stock picks led the positive uh, contribution, whereas a currency was the main detractor as a result of sterling's appreciation. But during the period, the average net quoted equity exposure was about 46 percent, uh, and that was dominated by structural themes and Asian equities. They also declared a couple of interim dividends, or rather they paid one and declared another, and that's up 0.7% on last year, the equivalent period. But they've got a more cautious approach to direct credit, uh, while gold continues to be held as a portfolio diversifier. But the team, the investment team there, led by uh, Ron Tabouche, noted, and this is a quote, this is not the time to relax, and they remain vigilant to systematic risk. Yes, I think that's uh, characteristic of the way they, they look at the world. They are very much focused on what the downside might be as well as what the upside is, and they try to capture the up, more of the upside than, and limit the amount of the downside. And, of course, they've done very well over many, many years. And, uh, indeed, after a rocky period a couple of years ago, or at least a relatively 
poor performance a couple of years ago and the retirement of Lord Rothschild from the Trust, they seem to have been putting in a good spurt of uh, good performance. So we can move on and talk about results from the UK sector now. Well, let's start off with Henderson Smaller Companies Investment Trust, HSL, managed by a gentleman called Neil Herman at uh, Janus Henderson. Well, I have a particular interest. I've been a shareholder in this one for as long as I can remember. And it's a very steady, consistent performer. Has it managed to keep that up in this period, uh, Simon? Absolutely. Yet another year of outperformance. So they released their annual report for the year to the 31st of May. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 58.5%. And that compared with a return of 54.1% for their benchmark, the NSC X investment companies index. In share price terms, it was even better. Actually, share price total return was up 69.3% as the discount narrowed to about 4%, started the period at about 10%. So that was all very positive. And you know, to your point about Neil Herman's performance record, I remember Neil being appointed manager of this one towards the end of 2002. But in the 18 financial years he's been responsible for Henderson Smaller Companies, he's outperformed his benchmark in 16 of them, which is a pretty respectable performance record. So in the period, the holdings that worked well for him, um, companies such as Impacts Asset Management, Codemasters Future and uh, Luceco. Also, Watches of Switzerland uh, is one of the largest uh, holdings in this portfolio, not Watches of Scotland, as I referred to it as a, in a podcast a week or two ago. But uh, yes, a good set of results for Neil yet again. Indeed, I have. So I'm very happy with that one, of course. Let's move on and talk about uh, Invesco Select Trust. They've had some annual results, and this one has been in the news because they recently completed a merger with another trust. So how does it look after that? That's right. So they announced annual results again to the 31st of May. And uh, it's worth noting that there are four share classes with this particular one. So the UK equity portfolio, the global equity income portfolio, a balanced risk allocation portfolio. And then there's a, a managed liquidity portfolio, which is a kind of cash proxy. So just running through those results very quickly for each leg. The UK portfolio was up 34.6%. That compared with the FTSE All Shares rise of 23.1%. So a decent outperformance. The global equity portfolio was up 35.9%. Again, outperforming uh, its relevant benchmark, the MSCI World Index, which was up 22.3%. The balanced risk allocation portfolio up 25.4%. Uh, and that compared with three-month LIBOR of, of about up 5% or so. And the managed liquidity portfolio came in at 3.6%. So overall, the different legs all seem to be doing a good job. But you're right, they have been in the spotlight a little bit recently, not least because Invesco income growth rolled into uh, the UK equity share class. So about £120 million or so got rolled into that share class. So now Invesco Select has uh, total assets of £250 million, of which the largest element is in that UK leg. So obviously they did that in order to increase the size of the combined vehicle and uh, that has some benefits to shareholders. How has the shares in this one been trading as a result of all these uh, goings on? Yeah, no, that's a good question. And uh, not that long ago, uh, Invesco Select actually adopted effectively a zero discount policy. And if you look at the global equity, the balanced risk allocation and the managed liquidity rating, they're all on a relatively small discount, probably 2% or so on average. However, that UK equity leg, the, the one that saw the rollover from Invesco Income Growth, 
that's trading out on a discount of about 6 or 7% or so at the moment. And uh, they did note in the results that a general meeting has been convened for the 31st of August to renew buyback authority. So basically, I mean, it's made a good start together, but we don't quite know where that's going to go yet. I guess Sylvester is going to see how that uh, settles down. I just started thinking with a trust like that, though, what do you think you should be comparing it to? I mean, it's got so many you know, different portfolios and different benchmarks. How should you actually think about it when you're looking at it? What are you hoping to see from a trust like that? No, it's a good question. And at one stage, we did have a number of investment trusts with not dissimilar structures. But basically, the point with this particular investment trust company is that the, there's an ability on a quarterly basis to convert between the different share classes. So the idea is that it becomes a bit of a lifestyle choice. So maybe when you're younger and, and happy to save a bit, that you might have an appetite for UK equities or global equities, say. And as you become older, then you want to take risk off the table and you might want to switch into a balanced risk allocation portfolio or maybe even a cash proxy. And the kind of advantage of this particular structure is that for UK investors anyway, there is no capital gains tax implications switching between the different legs. So that was the, the principle behind the structure. It kind of arose as a result of the Mercury Asset Management's sale many, many years ago before finding its way to the Invesco stable. But uh, yes, how do you compare this to other as well? I think you've got to look at it on the different legs. So for instance, we look at the UK leg of this particular fund uh, and compare it to other UK equity income funds. So assume that that particular share class is, is a fund in its own right. So it's quite complicated, basically, and presumably you have to know what you're doing to be able to switch between the different share classes. So it's uh, which is something you might be able to do yourself anyway, but an interesting structure in any event. Let's move on to talk about JP Morgan Claverhouse, JCH, which also uh, is an interesting vehicle. Tell us what they've had to say. So they announced interim results for the six months to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 14%, and that compared with a rise of 11.1% for the FTSE All Share Index. So in other words, they outperformed. Revenue per share was actually up 26% period on period, so it came in at 12 spot 82p, and they declared a first uh, interim dividend of 7p, which was actually, sorry, paid in June. The policy of this particular investment trust is to increase its dividend each year at a rate close to or above uh, inflation, and the idea is Certainly for 2021, that is continued, though it's likely to require the use of revenue reserves. But uh, what performed well for the investment team? So it's William Meaden and Callum Abbott on this one. Uh, well, it was holdings in banks, miners and oil stocks all performed well. Plus, Claverhouse benefited from the performance of JP Morgan's smaller companies in which it has a, a stake as well. But interesting commentary from the investment managers in terms of their outlook they believe that it's even more difficult than usual at present to make high conviction economic or market forecasts. Uh, and as a result of that, they've, they've brought their gearing down. It's still about 10% or so, but that's lower than usual. And the portfolio is not particularly tilted towards either value or growth. So uh, just a quick question then on this one. It's in the UK equity income sector, but it has a kind of total return objective, does it not? What is the yield and why is it in the UK equity income sector rather than... Uh in, say, the all companies sector? What's the characteristic of this particular trust that makes it uh, qualify for the UK equity income sector? Yep. So it has a yield of about 4% or so at the moment. And I might be wrong, but I'm fairly sure I'm right in saying that it's an AIC dividend hero. I might check that and come back to you on that. So I think the dividend is, is kind of a part of the story and has been for some time. In terms of its long-term performance record, well, certainly over five years, 
it's generated an NAV total return of about 43%, and that compares to a rise of 33% for the FTSE All Share Index. So it has a record of, of beating its benchmark over the long term. Okay, so move on to some overseas trusts now. We've got European Assets, EAT. They've had some interims out, and uh, what's the story with them? Yep, they announced their interim results again for the six months to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 13.4%. That compared with a rise of 10.5% for their benchmark, which is the EMIX, Smaller European Companies XUK Index. In share price terms, they did even better, up 17.6%. And that's a reflection of the fact their discount narrowed from about 9% to 6% in the period. A dividend of 8p was announced in respect of their financial year. And it's worth noting, actually, that this um, investment trust is uh, differentiated by its policy of paying an annual dividend equivalent to 6% of the NAV at the end of the preceding years. So um, this one's been doing this for some time, but we would call this now an enhanced dividend policy. And unsurprisingly, therefore, they paid, um, in terms of this period, a 4p dividend performance that outperformance that came as a result of its technology holdings semiconductor stocks performed particularly well during this period but it's managed by a chap called sam kosh he's been doing this for a few years now and it's very much focused on european small and mid-cap companies okay so we'll talk about another european trust a slightly bigger one this is fidelity european trust fev uh, and they've also had some interims up that's right again for the same period to the end of june uh, in that time, they generated an NAV total return of 12.9%. That compared with a rise of 10.9% for the FTSE World Europe XUK index. Share price terms, not quite as good, actually. Share price total return up 7.6%. And that was a reflection of the fact their discount widened from about 4% out to about 8%. Gearing was actually increased to a, a structurally higher level. And, and that certainly helped relative performance. And it stood about 12% at the end of the period. But some of the, the key stock contributors in that time were companies such as ASML, Partners Group, uh, Moe Hennessy, uh, Hermes and Novartis. But Sam Moss, a uh, very experienced manager on this one, has a real kind of focus on cash generative companies, particularly those with strong balance sheets. Yes, he featured in the Investment Trust Handbook last year, who has made some interesting comments about that. It's the largest trust in the European sector. I think I'm right in saying that. And how does its performance compare? Why have the discount been uh, widening out, do you think? Is that a common across the whole sector? Yes, I think it's probably the short answer. I mean, you're right in terms of the size. It's got a market cap of about 1.3 billion, which uh, does make it the largest in that European subsector. I mean, the long-term track record is strong over five years. It's up about 96%, and that compares a rise of 72% for the FTSE Europe XUK. But yeah, I think for various reasons, Europe kind of flits in and out of favour. Fidelity European Trust probably trading around about 8% or so at the moment. That compares with an average of about 6.5%. And it's probably a little bit wider than its peer group average, which is probably about 6% or so. Okay, we can move on to another Fidelity Trust, Fidelity Japan Trust. Uh, they've also had interims out. Uh, that's FJV. How have they been doing in Japan? Well, interim results at the end of June, NAV total return up 2.3% compared with its reference index of 0.2%. So in other words, it outperformed. Share price total return up 2.5% as the discount narrowed a little bit. But I think we've talked before about how Japan has been a difficult market so far this year. And obviously, that's reflected in this fund's results. Um, they did well from the debut of an unlisted holding. I'm going to pronounce it as a uh, 
Coconala, uh, which was a online consumer-to-consumer freelancing platform, and that certainly helped its performance. And in fact, uh, it's got three unlisted names uh, in the portfolio at the end of June, but it's fair to say that most uh, of the portfolio is in uh, publicly listed equities. But yeah, a difficult period for Japanese equities, and I suspect uh, Nicholas Price, who's the uh, manager of this one, will be happy to have outperformed in this period. Okay, well, we want to talk about uh, Fundsmith Emerging Equities Trust, uh, FEET, F-E-E-T, which was started by uh, Terry Smith of uh, Fundsmith and Smithson fame. This has always been something of a a relatively uh, poor performer, certainly by contrast with uh, the other trust that uh, Fundsmith manages. But uh, how have they been getting on in the last period? Obviously, they're in the emerging markets uh, sector. Yeah, so these were the interim results for the six months to the end of June. In that time, they generated an NAV total return of 2%, and that compared to a rise of 6.4% for their benchmarks. In other words, they underperformed a little. In share price terms, they were even worse. Actually, they dipped into negative territory. They were down 0.9%, as the discount went out to about 6% from 3%. So the underperformance in the period was partially attributed to the rotation to value in the market that we've discussed on a number of occasions. And they made the point that the fund will not invest in resources, banking, or heavy industrials. Though the board have, uh, as part of the discount management strategy, have been buying back shares. About £2 million of stock was bought back in this period. But it is an interesting portfolio. It's certainly different from most uh, emerging market portfolios. A heavy weighting to India, about 45%, uh, and in Asia in general, as you'd expect given the Fundsmith heritage, consumer staples feature large. It's a very constructive portfolio, probably about 38 holdings. Consumer staples, about 44% of the portfolio. Yes, it's interesting that the kind of general approach that's been so successful for Fundsmith, the open-ended fund, and for uh, Smithson uh, just doesn't seem to work so well when it's applied to emerging markets. Lots of reasons why that might be the case. Uh, But I think it's fair to say that the performance has been dull. Perhaps that's even been quite polite about it. Let's move on and talk about Mobius Investment Trust, MMIT. Obviously, Mark Mobius, the former manager of the Templeton Emerging Markets Trust, is involved in this one. He's started it. They've had some interim results, and they've been slightly better than uh, Feet, it's fair to say, I think. Yes, you're absolutely right. Mobius Investment Trust, after a bit of a quiet start from its launch, does seem to uh, have got its kind of act together. Certainly, the, in the interim results for the six months to the end of May, um, they generated an NAV total return of just short of 23%. Share price not quite as good as that, actually. Share price to return up about 20% as the discount widened out a little bit. But the performance was a result of a stock selection. Again, a very concentrated portfolio, only 28 holdings at the end of May, and invested in, in just 12 countries. So India, again, being the largest geographic exposure at 28% of the portfolio, and quite a big weight into technology, 37% or so. But it's very much a high conviction approach uh, focused on small and mid cap companies uh, and again, obviously on the emerging and frontier markets as well. But so far this year in share price terms, it's up about 33%. And that compares with the MSCI emerging index, which is probably flat on the year in stunning terms. Yes, it's, it's been quite interesting. I think they're the best performing emerging markets investment trust over the last 12 months. And I think they're one of the few, if perhaps not the only one, to be trading at a premium. So they seem to be doing well after, as you say, a rather patchy start. No, I think that's spot on. And it's an interesting one because when Mark Mavis and Carlos Hamburg started this particular investment trust off, it was clear they were trying to do something a little bit different 
with uh, the investment approach. Previously, they'd been involved in the management of the Templeton Emerging Markets, and that was a more, as it still is, a more mainstream Emerging Markets Investment Trust. I think they had a vision of approaching things a little bit different in terms of Mobius Investment Trust, and as I mentioned, that kind of mid and small cap exposure. And for the initial period, it wasn't particularly clear that uh, they were getting much traction. But just as you correctly observe, in the last six to 12 months, that the numbers have started to come through. But it's a very stock-specific portfolio. It is not uh, for people looking for kind of generalist emerging market exposure. There are probably more obvious names to, to go for. Yes, I mean, it's also about to come up to its three-year anniversary. And that's often the point when people start to look at trusts with greater interest when they can see a three-year track record. And it's trading uh, at a very small premium. So they presumably might have some hopes that they can grow this a bit further and maybe issue some more shares. No, I think that's spot on. I mean, the market cap at the moment is just above £150 million. So um, a reasonable size, but obviously dwarfed by some of the other names in, in the peer group. And I think it would help their case if they could grow the size of the investment trust company it would just allow some other uh, investors, particularly institutional investors, to begin to put some meaningful money at, to work in this one. Yes, I think the only comment I'd make also is this. Mark Mavis is a bit of a phenomenon. I mean, I don't know how old he is now, but he I would think he must be somewhere around 80 years old, I think. I mean, he always was full of energy. We know that. And, you know, I think I've been around for a while, but he's been around for a lot longer than I have. And he's still going strong. I don't know whether he's still flying all around the world as, as he used to do. He used to have a private jet that he would fly from Turkey to Brazil and back again and so on. But anyway, more power to his elbow and to his colleague, Carlos Hardenberg, of course. Let's move on and talk about some specialist trusts. Alliance Technology Trust, obviously one of the great performers last year. That's ATT, when everything was going for it. Uh, what do the latest results look like? Yes, I think it's probably fair to say it's a quieter period for Allianz Technology Trust. Uh, in terms of its interim results for the six months to the end of June, the NAV total return was up about 7%. That compared with a rise of 13.9% for its benchmark. And in share price terms, actually, uh, again, dipped into negative territory down about 0.8% as the rating declined from a 2% premium to a 5.5% discount. The underperformance was largely attributed to market rotation, though actually the managers did increase the exposure to, to more cyclical companies in the period, and that was in the semiconductor, hardware and travel segments. So they took some money off the table in terms of some of their high growth stocks. Interestingly, in terms of the kind of what they did on the, the share issuance and buyback side, so 6.8 million new shares were issued, but I think probably at the start of the period, while they did actually buy some shares back as well, 1.5 million shares bought back at an average discount of about 7%. But um, yeah, a more difficult period for Allianz Technology, obviously still a very strong long-term track record uh, under the management of Walter Price. Yes, there's been quite a lot of rotation this year, as we know. There was a period when value stocks did very well and technology stocks did quite poorly. And a lot of these trusts went from a premium to a discount. But in the last two or three months, that's uh, it's kind of reversed a little bit. So it's been an up and down uh, story for these trusts. Let's talk about Impact's Environmental Markets, IEM. That's one you mentioned that had done well for Peter Hewitt in his trust. What have their results been like? So they announced interim results to the end of June, in which time they generated an NAV total return of 13.5% and a share price return of 12.8%, and that compared with an increase of 1.7% for the FTSE Environmental Technology 100 and a rise of 11.1% for the MSCI or Country World. So in other words, it outperformed both those comparative indices. The fund benefited from being underweight renewable energy, uh, which saw a bit of a valuation correction from previous levels. It also benefited from being overweight positions in food, 
agriculture and forestry, and also water infrastructure as well. And not owning uh, some of the technology names that underwent inflation-related corrections also proved positive. Um, but it's a very interesting portfolio. Obviously, impacts have been doing this for quite a long time. They're certainly not late to the party. Uh, Bruce Jenkins Jones and John Foster, highly experienced investors in this space, and uh, their investment manager's report gives a lot of colour of how they see the world. I mean, they described valuations as remaining challenging, but they consider them navigable given their global remit and the broad range of sectors that the investment trust can invest in. One interesting development, though, was actually the manager asked the board to limit share issuance to 10% per annum just to manage the overall flows into the strategy. And clearly, as you might imagine, in the last few years, with demand for ESG-friendly type investment approaches that impact in asset management have benefited hugely from that. But they have asked for it to be limited in the case of the investment trust. And the chairman noted that if demand outstrips available issuance, then there is the potential for the premium to NAV to increase. Indeed, and you can see that happening if indeed there's a bit of a bandwagon, because anybody who's been doing this kind of thing for a long period, as they have, uh, has a head start of over many other trusts which are now trying to prove their ESG credentials, shall we say. This one clearly has those. And, uh, well, it wasn't that long ago. Well, perhaps two or three years ago, this one would, would have traded at a discount, but it's uh, certainly not trading at a discount now. So presumably it has got some growth potential if it can maintain that premium and, and issue some more shares. That would be of interest within those limits that they've set. OK, well, let's talk about Pantheon International. This is a, uh, a private equity uh, trust. What have they had to say? That's PIN is the is the ticker for that one. So they announced annual results for the year to the 31st of May. In that time, they generated an NAV return of 19.6% and a share price return of 31.7%. And that compares with a rise of about 22.8% for the MSCI World Index in sterling terms. So what happened here? Well, the investment portfolio um, saw good valuation gains up about 36%. Uh, before foreign currency movements are taken into account. And that reflects the bias to sectors such as uh, information technology, which represents about 29% of the portfolio, and also healthcare, that's about 20%, and consumer staples, 15%. So their kind of core uh, exposure really working well for them in this year. Buyout and growth segments also performed well, and they saw some good strong exits and valuation gains during that year. But um, quite a bit of investment activity overall in this portfolio, as you would expect, given what we've seen across the private equity sector. So distributions totaled 319 million in the year, and that represented 22% of the opening portfolio, while they funded calls of about 120 million. So they ended up with a net cash inflow of just short of 200 million pounds. Um, so that leaves them with a, a pretty strong balance sheet, though they do have outstanding commitments of about 528 million at the end of May. And it's worth saying their net assets are not too far off about 1.9 billion now. So it's a decent sized fund, this one. But the manager remains cautious uh, given high valuations across the private equity sector and potential interest rate rises. But the way that they are navigating that, they are very much emphasizing specific growth sectors, which they believe are attractive. So they talk about making more co investments and getting involved in single company secondaries as well. So it might just be worth it putting in the context of the private equity sector, where a lot of people have been saying it looks attractive with those very big discounts. But Pantheon, I mean, it's it's one of those that invests in other funds rather than directly. And uh, it still trades on a big discount and its performance record is not as good as some of its peers. So why do you think uh, that is? Why is it still out on a big uh, 24% discount? 
and to be fair, it's in good company as well. So I, I think there is, I think we've probably talked about this relatively recently, but I think the fund of funds in terms of the private equity funds do face a headwind. And I think it's because of the perception of the level of costs involved in the fund of funds structure, rightly or wrongly. But if you look across the peer group, you're spot on Pantheon on about a 24% discount, probably the same levels of standard life private equity, uh, which has a not dissimilar approach. Harbourvest Global Private Equity on a 21% discount. So these are quite big discounts. ICG Enterprise, probably about 18%, so slightly narrower. But if you look at the performance records of these funds, I mean, they're all pretty respectable, frankly, over the long term, uh, to say the least. So you have funds such as Harbourvest, which uh, in share price total return terms over five years up 151%. Pantheon, as you say, a little bit behind, but up 91%. Uh, and then people like Standard Life and ICG Enterprise up about 120 plus percent over that five-year period. So they, they have got strong long-term track records, but unfortunately seem not to be finding favour with investors at the moment. Okay, so we're getting closer to the end now. We can move on and talk about um, our trust, which is in the infrastructure sector. That is the Renewables Infrastructure Group, TRIG. They've had some interim results. And of course, this has been a sector where there's been a lot of issuance recently and demand for the shares. How have they been doing? Yeah, so interim results to the end of June. During that time, there was an NAV total return of 2%. But if you actually look at the NAV, so just put the dividend to one side for the moment, they've actually saw a decline of about 0.9% during that first half of this year. So again, lots of moving parts in these infrastructure funds. What happened here? Well, we saw an increase in near-term forward power prices, but the gains were partially offset by reductions in the medium to long-term power forecasts and also below average weather resource, which sounds a bit sinister, but that certainly didn't work in its favour. Energy production was 12% below budget in that six-month period. And also, we've, we, again, we talked about this before, future corporation tax rates in the UK have been moved up, and that has a negative impact on the NAV as well. So a few moving parts, but the long and the short of it is that they ended up down in NAV terms 0.9%, up total return 2%. But the good news is that the cash dividend cover came in at uh, just short of 1.3 times, or in fact, if you strip out the, the repayment of project level debt, it came in about 2.1 times. And again, the dividend guidance for the full year was reiterated. So I, I suspect a lot of people are kind of focused on the dividend and, and certainly Trig, as the Renewables Infrastructure Group is known, um, has a yield on historic basis of about 5% or so uh, at the moment. Right. And we've seen the premiums on some of these uh, renewable trusts come in. I think that was also something that uh, we mentioned in the context of Peter Hewitt's trust. But they're still on quite healthy premiums, so there's still presumably some demand out there, and uh, we may yet see some more funding. Is that likely, do you think? I think you're probably correct on both counts, actually. So you look at the average premium rating, certainly on the renewable energy infrastructure side at the moment, it's about 9%. Again, there's quite a lot of variation within that. So actually, Trig on about an 18% premium is at the top end, and then some are a lot more modest um, or even on very small discounts at the moment. But the, the yield is the kind of the key thing. The average yield in that renewable energy infrastructure peer group, probably about 5, 5.1% on, on a weighted average basis, certainly. And I, I think one would imagine that that is the key attraction for this particular peer group. OK, and so finally, we're going to talk about a, a property investment trust. We're not going to cover all the NAV updates of the property sector, which have been coming thick and fast in the last few days. But uh, we're going to talk about Tritax Big Box REIT, BBOX, 
which is uh, in the logistics and warehouse business, as its name implies. Uh, and they've had some interim results. They have indeed interim results to the end of June. Uh, their EPRA NTA per share was up 10.6% in that period. So that's equivalent of their NAV. In total return terms, it was up 12.5%, which actually represents the strongest six-month period since launch. At the end of June, the whole portfolio was valued at just short of £4.9 billion. So this is a significant portfolio now. And in fact, they made more acquisitions uh, during the period in southwest England for about uh, £90 million or so. And also there's significant development activity as well. And they expect that to accelerate in the second half of the year, which should be good in terms of increasing their rent roll. There's talk of potential to add about £19 million to rent. So that's all pretty positive. Uh, what does it mean to shareholders? Well, adjusted earnings per share were up 24%. And we came in at 4.03p in the first half, and that reflected development completions and rental growth, as well as the increase in development management income. And dividends per share totaled 3.2p, and that was declared in respect of the period, and that was up 2.4% from the same six-month period last year. So the dividend payout ratio was 79% or 87% if you exclude the additional development management income. And in fact, in terms of the rent collection levels, that came in at 99.5% and all arrears are expected to be received by the year end. So in contrast to a number of the, the more mainstream UK commercial property funds, this sounds and feels like it's in good shape. Okay, so that brings us to the end this week, Simon. As I said before, next week you're sadly not going to be here, or indeed the week after. You're, for some reason, taking a holiday. I don't know why they allow you to do that, but, uh, you know, the investment trust will goes on, and we will have to make do as best we can without you. But uh, as I say, we're going to have a couple of guest co-hosts, if you like, on this podcast in the next couple of weeks. I hope you'll join us for that. If you're interested in the Moneymakers Circle, we did an interesting Q&A with Harry Nimmo last week, and we got another one with... Uh, Laura Foll, who's the co-manager of a couple of the Janice Henderson trusts that we mentioned, her Henderson Opportunities, and Lowland, among others. So let's round off by saying, Simon, I wish you well for your summer holiday. And uh, when you come back in September, who knows? I can remember years gone by when, in the middle of August, terrible things started to happen, like the Asian crisis and the uh, LTCM blowing up and all those kind of things. So you, you can never afford to go away for long. But hopefully when you come back, the world will not have changed terribly for the worst. And we'll look forward to having you back then. Thank you very much. This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.money-makers.co, to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Thank you for listening. And if you want more news, analysis, interviews, and other investment trust content, don't forget to take a look at our premium service, The Moneymakers Circle, available now at the website.